Thanks a lot, everyone. Um, now, the second workshop we're going to have is actually going to be Robin. Robin is going to talk to us about participation income, community currencies, and the new social economy. Um, Robin, take Thank it away. Thank you very much. The background to this talk is that I've spent the last 10 years doing postgraduate studies, originally looking at sustainability and how community initiatives can contribute to sustainability norms, so changing behaviours towards sustainability. And I was looking at two case studies of local food and um, community currencies were my two case studies. So the summary of what I'll be talking about is this emerging um, concept of positive ecology um, and has a particular view of sustainability, um, of how we've come to this position of being in a bit of an unsustainability position, how we can begin to move towards sustainability. Um, and it really rests on um, a view of uh, cognitive limitations of the brain. So we've sort of got this, this inherently um, insecure brain caused by evolution um, and the governance challenge that that causes. So I see alternative currencies and participation income as a means of counteracting that and of providing two crucial needs, human needs, which have been sort of downplayed over history. And then briefly I'll talk about uh, Libwell Tasmania, um, which has a, a community exchange project and we're at the very, very early beginnings of looking at a participation income campaign and also the idea of agri-food learning regions. So some underpinning assumptions. You can take a benevolent view of history and of, of human nature. So even though we've taken a pathway over the last 10,000 years which has caused immense misery, pain and premature death for billions of people, uh, but some would also point to the amazing advances in science and technology that we have had alongside that. Um, and you could say well, that pathway was inevitable um, because of early ignorance of human needs um, and a lack of a systems view. Um, but I do think that there is a, a self-correction dynamic and an integration of worldviews towards wellbeing. So you can only run down our vital support systems to a, a um, certain level before there's, there's kickback. So we've got our, our social life support systems that we've been running down and our ecological life support systems that have been running down. But as Polanyi, and a few people have referred to Polanyi, when he talks about the double movement, um, where people start to say, well, hang on, we've got to do something about this. But we do have this basic problem that the, um, the individual brain is not by itself 100% self-regulating. So we do um, need a, a governance system to ensure sufficient regulation. Um, and also the point that uh, socioeconomic insecurity does amplify that, that basic um, initial problem. So looking at um, the different governance systems, um, so positive ecology contends that community supported by a responsive government and a highly regulated market initially, and then more of a move towards community currencies or alternative currencies, um, because community is the best means of providing the social support <coughs> system that we need necessary to address brain insecurity. So uh, governments don't have that inherent capacity and neither does the market. 
And the last point there is about that we are in this amazing era, which can be called post-growth, can be called post-scarcity, or uh, post-work, wage, wage labour, um, because we have solved what humanity has been striving for for the last 10,000 years is material security, and that's been our focus, economic growth, material security has been our absolute focus. Uh, but we've now reached the point where we make all the stuff that we need, and obviously way more than we need, with a very small percentage of people. So we have this amazing opportunity to actually focus on non-material needs and the distribution um, of uh, the, the stuff that we do make. So um, in terms of um, this positive ecology approach to sustainability, so we know that we need to <coughs> decrease the quantity of uh, discretionary consumption and also to decrease the footprint of non-discretionary um, consumption. And we need to, um, for, for that, we need massive cooperation to, to attack both those um, things. And so the move from competition to cooperation. So currently we see the economy as our prime mode of governance, which is, a, it is based on competitive relationships between people, in, in essence, even though it's got that, that underlying basis of, of cooperative relationships. Um, and, but we know that the aim of a governance system is to satisfy human needs and we have material uh, economic needs and non-material psychosocial needs. Um, but the key to, um, or a key to um, uh, sustainability is regulating in a low footprint way and meeting of needs. So um, there is the working group in NINA of subjective experience and one take on that is that it's about brain functioning. How can we um, ensure that our brains are functioning in an optimal way, which is based on well-being? Um, and this um, refers to changing the, the economic growth narrative or, or mantra to a concept of well-being as a replacement goal for humanity. So we've reached that, that point where we can move um, from one to the other. And sustainable well-being is, is a very, um, in one way, simple concept of what's good for us is good for the planet. Um, and the last assumption, um, you know, people can talk about politicians being completely ignorant and, and wrecking our planet, etc. Well, we can say that, that they're not evil, um, they're vulnerable like the rest of us. Um, and over history, it's been an inevitable process of moving from low levels of knowledge, particularly of human needs, to now where we're starting to understand a bit more about basic human needs um, and how we interact with each other. So we have this um, a dual nature of the brain, the brain, and they complement each other. It's not a matter of, well, we've got to get rid of our reactive stress part of the brain and, and just um, let the executive functioning part of the brain um, dominate. They, they both complement each other. We obviously need both parts of the brain. But the, the mismatch hypothesis is that we have this ancient brain um, and we have modern society and the two, the, the one is, is not sufficient to cope with, with modern society. And we've amplified the, um, the survival part of the brain and there's particular uh, cognitive limitations where we are naturally suspicious of strangers. Um, and uh, increased stress sort of narrows our our um, attention to just a narrow focus on our own self-interest. And there's also really this, this paradox. So 
Um, our brain works by impelling us towards seeking pleasure, um, e.g. food and companionship, and trying to avoid pain. That, that's just an automatic response of the brain as a survival mechanism. Um, but the brain is, is aimed at keeping us alive, basically, in, in the hunter-gatherer sense. You know, we have to escape predators, um, etc., and, and try and get enough food. So that's what the brain is aimed at. The brain is not aimed at uh, providing us with happiness. Um, and, but the research is showing that for happiness we need meaning in our life. We need meaningful relationships and um, uh, meaningful participation. And for that, we really need to tolerate short-term pain. That's, that is inevitable. We can't avoid, avoid that. Um, so there's this paradox between our automatic um, instincts and what the, the thinking part of our brain, uh, how that can override that towards greater meaning. So with that basic limitation of our individual brains, we look towards collective self-regulation, self but over history we can see that, um, and we had a great discussion with uh, Jonathan about how religion has sort of changed over the years, um, being corrupted by power and, and wealth. Um, so I'll just try and get away for a few slides from uh, this text. Um, and look at a few images. So we know that, that um, when this image emerged that it did cause a little bit of a shift in, in consciousness, um, ecological consciousness, obviously not enough of a shift, but people saw how finite the planet was, um, how beautiful it is, but, but how finite it is, and uh, how we're overstretching its capacity. Um, but for me, there's, there's a few slides which for me, um, are just as important as that slide in, in really shifting the, the paradigm of, um, mm. towards sustainability. Mm. So, so this one is obviously of, of our mm -hmm. brain. Um, so the, the theory of positive ecology said that, that this is the basic source of, of the problems. Um, in other words, of nurturing our two life support systems and the ecological support system. So one basic element which influences how our brains operate, how well we can balance our own needs and, and other needs, is our sense of self-worth. When we have low self-worth and low trust in others, uh, sorry, in ourselves to manage our emotions, we do tend to be hyper-vigilant. Um, but a role of the, the prefrontal cortex is to calm the, the amygdala, which is the fight, flight and, and freeze part of the brain. Um, and allow us to have trust in ourselves and therefore trust in others as well. So, that, and the second one is this, the golden triangle of, of um, it can be called of well-being, of happiness, of ap optimal functioning of the brain and of motivation. So we need to fulfil basic material needs, food, shelter, etc. We need meaningful participation, which in the past has been sort of satisfied by well, supposedly satisfied by, by work um, and meaningful social relationships. So without those three, it's very difficult um, to achieve well-being and to maximise cooperation. So the third one is this, what's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve. There's also a concept of, of hemesis, which also describes this, this um, as well, that we really function optimally at the top of that curve. We need some stress, um, but once we tip over and, and experience too much stress, then the, 
um, the brain is overwhelmed and cannot take in information, cannot learn, etc. Um, so this is uh, was for Filipinos, but I think it can be um, uh, applicable to to other cultures as well in terms of looking at um, the differences between uh, stressors with the environment that we evolved in to the stressors that we experience now. So they didn't have many smartphones back in hunter-gatherer days, not much traffic, um, and definitely not job insecurity. Uh, and you know, finances was a, just uh, is a modern concept. So you know, these have greatly increased um, the number of stresses that we experience today. If we look at, at um, the, the research in terms of why do we have differing um, capacities to handle stress, then uh, there's a theory of attachment theory, um, which looks at uh, our early caregiving experience and uh, the stresses that we experience in early life and how that impacts um, on our capacity to handle stress. And a crucial point, and this comes um, across in, in Buddhist and contemplative practice um, theory, is it's not the stressor itself that causes the problems, it's how we actually respond to the, firstly how we perceive it, so two different people will perceive the exactly the same stressor in quite different ways. One will really um, react negatively and another person may react positively to exactly the same stressor. So it's not the stressor itself, it's, it's how we think about the stressor. Um, and too much stress in early life makes it um, difficult for us to, we don't learn the, the way of handling stress constructively um, and to believe in our own self-worth and the self-worth of others. So we develop these different worldviews and different beliefs, um, such as differences in perceptions of whether the world is, is inherently a dangerous place or a safe place. Um, whether people can be trusted, um, does the world owe us a living or do we owe the world a living? And the idea of a fixed versus a growth mindset. So a fixed mindset says, well, you know, we can't change once we um, develop certain habits, they're sort of set in stone. The growth mindset um, recognises brain plasticity, that in actual fact the brain can change and does change um, even during adult life. So there is this correlation between early experience and, for instance, conservative, conservative versus liberal voting. So there's a, an actual field of political neuroscience which points to that dynamic. Um, and worldviews is very important um, in terms of <coughs> cognitive bias, where we'll only believe information that fits with our worldview. So we'll deny other information that doesn't fit with our worldview, such as climate change. We'll, um, we'll deny that if it doesn't fit with our belief that we will need a lot of material security and economic growth. So we have this low individual capacity for self-regulation. So over history, we've experimented with collective uh, regulation. So we develop institutions to, to try and do that job. Um, but they tend to be developed by uh, leaders who have this hypervigilance problem. I mean, they're, they're human too. And we know that um, power and wealth corrupts um, that's just a basic um, dynamic of, of um, the human brain. So we can say that there's t 
two, there's a lot of ways of, of looking at trends over history, but this is just one popular uh, positive, possible way of looking at um, trends over history. So we've just got this material growth phase where all, um, all human endeavour was um, allied towards solving the food insecurity. Okay, okay, I'll go. Travel on, um, and but now we've got this. The fantastic news is we've got this post-material um, growth phase. So, um, so looking at community governance, where we can build on this this um, post post-growth phase, um, where she talks about different ways of um, uh, governing communities. Um, so there's just three of those there, and one of them relates to. Um, probably can skip over that one that's talking about um, uh, problems with feedback um, so this is a, is a big problem with our current system that the feedback is generally taken in terms of reactive feedback um, but a reflective feedback in a worth affirming way is, is a big part of the challenge so yeah, talking about money, why do we need money um, as a medium of exchange? I think there's probably a lot of people here in the room who are probably more well versed on money and banking than, than I am, but basically um, uh, it's a form of governance to attempt collective self-regulation, but has been co-opted is one sort of taken. So yeah, I think we do have this amazing opportunity where we know that the old economy and conventional money has reached the end of its useful life, cannot continue and will not continue. So there's both push and pull factors um, towards that. And we have the knowledge um, of what we can do, begin to do, um, but we just need the will. And I think well-being is the foundation of building that will. Uh, so yeah, we have this, uh, this really um, far-reaching implications of post-growth uh, and moving from industrial food to sustainable food and um, uh, exchange is another important part of that. So community currencies and the community exchange system. So we've <coughs> said that uh, provision of basic needs is the, the prime um, foundation of a, a political economic system. Um, and our currencies has failed to do this. So uh, community currencies or alternative currencies are inherently um, guided towards, well, it's probably you can have a distinction between community currencies and other alternative currencies, but community currencies definitely are aimed towards meaningful social relationships and meaningful participation. So contribution is valued by both the giver and the receiver. Um, and one crucial thing that you have to do is identify what you can offer to others and what you need, what are your real needs, that, that's um, something that, that develops over time. Um, so going on from there to a participation income, I think people would know about the idea of a, a basic guaranteed income, mm -hmm. which is an, an income for everybody, regardless of um, whether you're in a job or not in a job. Um, so this helps with uh, socio-economic insecurity, which is, is a huge problem. So, um, but the difference between a participation income and a basic income is that um, uh, you do have to participate in some way. Raising children, caring for the elderly, environmental projects, um, social therapy, arts therapy, music therapy, pet therapy are all um, ways that can count towards participation. <coughs> 
um, and ideally this would be regulated by community exchange type groups. Um, and people say, well, how would it be funded? That's one of the first questions, which is uh, a question that comes from old economy thinking, but it's still obviously relevant. Um, it still has to be addressed. So just going back to that, sorry, going back to that graph, and we look at the huge waste of resources, which comes from, uh, for some having too little stress and some having too much stress. So we've got huge health costs, we've got huge costs of our judicial system, our courts, our prisons, um, etc. Bureaucracy, um, there's the, you know, once we start to reduce those costs, then um, it becomes less of a problem. So Live Well Tasmania, having corporate in 2015, um, our mission is to increase the wellbeing of disadvantaged youth by a whole community approach. We auspice the Community Exchange Network Tasmania project, 550 members since 2012. I think there's eight subgroups, something like that. Tanya? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and host work for the doll, community gardens, etc. We're out of time. Yes. Thank you very much.